Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. This is Pod Have Mercy. I'm John Stevens. And I'm Matt Russell. And today we are joined by a friend of yours that you are bringing along to help us process some, what really stuff has been important for for the, the both of us to talk about, whether it was the medical professionals or spiritual care. And today we're continuing in that whole line of spirituality yeah. in the midst of pandemic. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Dr. Bill Curley is... Uh, is a therapist. He's a theologian uh, and a, uh, really a, a spiritual director and a teacher. Uh, and I, um, I've known him for about uh, eight years and um, found him to be uh, both kind of walking in kind of deep waters and uh, makes that accessible to other folks. And so I think just some of the things that he'll have to say to us today will help us um, help help us to understand the reality that we're living in. And also this reality of the spiritual life that God calls us to, um, um, to to anchor ourselves in. Yeah, there's a deep hunger. I think there's a hunger. People don't even know what the hunger is. Yeah. There's just now, you know, we're getting far enough into this where there's just levels of dissatisfaction and fear and anger. And, yes. And you see it playing out on the news and protesting and yeah. uh, people are not certain what to make of all of this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think as we as we walk through this, both with our own community, uh, with the city of Houston, and this kind of this larger global um, kind of event, that there are, as you continue to talk about, there's these anchor points that that our faith has a lot, not just to say in this time, but has a lot to root us into an entire different root system, mm-hmm. right? One that is. Um, that, that, that says, fear not, not because there's nothing to fear, but because there is a presence that is underneath the fear that is deeper than that, mm. uh, that offers us life. It's not dependent um, on the, uh, the economy or our health. Uh, it's a reality that we can put our, our trust in. Yeah. How are you, Bill? I'm doing really well. Uh, I'm finding this uh, kind of work I see clients and directees on Tuesdays and Wednesdays more demanding than being in the office. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've done uh, virtual sessions for years, but only maybe one or two a week. Yeah. But now that I'm doing eight or ten and sometimes five or six back to back, that's a lot. By the way, my my four o'clock appointment today canceled, so I'm not. You're not up against it. Uh, you can talk for. Two I'm or not three up hours. against it to leave. <laughs> uh, I do have my hand sanitizer here in case something gets out of line. Okay, <laughs> keep it keeping it clean. Keeping it clean. That's great. Well, I think I think one of the uh, the best outcomes we could have is just to give folks. Um, kind of, in a sense, some tools, some tips to have a discussion around kind of spiritual resources, psychological, mental health resources for folks. I think that um, as we're kind of into this now, um, how long have we been? I don't know. Forever, in eternity. Yeah. It feels like months into this that it, you know, and with kind of oil prices taking a hit and school being called off this last week, that that there's kind of just a rise in 
and anxiety uh, with folks. And so just, uh, um, I think being able to talk about that, being able to, um, you know, um, to give folks some, some help with that, some tips, some spiritual um, direction on that. One of the things that I'm seeing that people are dealing with is an immense, uh, an immense amount of grief. Mm. Their schedules have been lost. Their routines have been lost. Money has been lost. Jobs have been lost. Um, nobody's really certain about what um, what's going to be after this. We're not going to return to normal. There's That's gone. And so that creates a lot of anxiety for people about, so what's going to happen? Mm. And, you know, I, th- I keep thinking that uh, for those of us who try to work out our our faith inside the Christian tradition, this ought to be our cup of tea, <laughs> because we're all about resurrection, and we're all about newness and life coming out of death, and a belief that uh, there's nothing that defeats uh, the love that we experience in in our faith. Mm-hmm. And uh, although it's scary. We um, have a teacher who said, why are you so frightened? There's nothing to be frightened of. Worst they can do is kill you. <laughs> and you're already dead if you I believe me. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't mean to make light. Uh, I mean, I, I heard today a woman tell me that her um, uncle's mother died uh, and they can't have a funeral. They can't go to the funeral. They can't get together and mourn as a family. So that's extremely stressful for people and Mm -hmm. to have our usual kind of rituals taken away. And um, as I understand it, uh, faith communities are going to be a long time before we gather together again in person. I think that's true. And I think that's a big, that's another big part of the, the grieving process. Yeah. I mean, for me personally, you know, we, we, it was two weeks first and then it was 30 days or whatever through Mother's Day. And now you have states that want to reopen. But for me, everything was building up to Easter or I thought maybe we'll do this four weeks or five weeks online church. And now it could be well into the summer or, or longer yeah. And, and, and yeah. And so then I kind of hit this dark turn and I'm thinking to myself, I don't really, this is, I don't like it, but I'm going to have to figure out how to get right with that. It's a sort of, I always use the word like resignation, but I don't know if that's the best word. It's acceptance yes. when you're talking about grief, yeah. a level of acceptance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember Richard Rohr, I think I shared with you before, said that to all, we're all, all of us are all dealing with grief. It's just, we manifest that grief either in fear or anger, depending on our political leanings or our, our ideological leanings. Yeah, yeah. And so I see a lot of fear and anger going on in the world. Yeah, me too. And I'm glad you mentioned Richard Rohr because in his daily meditation this past Sunday, he said that he had often said that it would be a great thing for the churches to close their doors for a year to give the church time to develop a contemplative life. Well, we have that opportunity right now. And one of the things that I'm finding that's so beneficial for me personally, um, because I'm a seven on the Enneagram and use um, my spiritual practice involves a lot of head stuff. 
uh, I'm using this time to go to YouTube and to listen to teachers that I love, like Jim Finley, uh, give lectures and talks about deepening the contemplative life. Mm -hmm. And that's free. Most people have, anybody who's watching this has access to YouTube. So they can go on YouTube and type in Jim Finley and they can uh, have great free lectures about spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. And this is a great time for people to learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. Spend time learning to pray. So Bill, what would you say to somebody that um, um, is in the, as you say, in the Christian tradition, we believe in the resurrection, all those things, but they're really experiencing a death. Um, what would you say to somebody in that grieving process um, that is is feeling more fear than they are freedom in that or fearing more constriction than they are kind of this opportunity? Well, right now in my own teaching, what I'm trying to pay attention to is uh, developing a mature faith. What does it mean to grow in wisdom and what does it mean to grow in understanding? And I find that a lot of people don't like the fact that death is a part of the life process mm -hmm. and that somehow we think that we're an exception to this, that we get to bypass it somehow. Um, and, and as a matter of fact, I blame the church in some ways for creating this expectation of saying that what happens right here is really not that big a deal. You just tread water for a while because the big deal is after you die out there somewhere. Yeah. But this is the, this is the deal right now. And it involves an ongoing experience of giving up, letting go over and over and over again to move on to some other level of, of existence. Mm. And um, we don't like that. And I think what we, you know, I, I forget the poet who's, who said this, we're here to see each other home. And while those of us who at the moment have some ability to hang on to hope and to give expression to it, I think that's one way that we can comfort our brothers and sisters who are scared and grieving. Mm. We, as Paul says, we comfort with the comfort with which we have been comforted. Mm. And that's one of the ways that community serves each other. So that in a couple of days, when I've lost all semblance of believing this, <laughs> I'll contact somebody who still has it and can give it back to me. That's that's what. Yeah, yeah. So we we are with each other as a community of faith. You don't have love alone. That's good. That's good. So what is the what what does the spiritual life or the spiritual practices? I mean, how do they? Um, I hear you talk about this alternative reality of of um, of not kind of a, a spiritual life that kind of is an evacuation plan, but one that puts you in the world in a different way. What's the connection between that and our spiritual practices um, uh, in this time? One of the ways that I nag people is uh, about having a daily spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. You have to have a daily spiritual practice. And I want people to have a practice, or I encourage people to have a practice that involves three things. It involves your head space, your heart space, and your hand space. Mm -hmm. So I think we, again, are privileged people. Anybody, again, who's listening to this or watching this, we are among the 
really privileged people on the planet. And, and we have an opportunity to commit ourselves to psycho-spiritual growth by continuing to learn about our faith mentally, read things, mm. have conversations that engage the mind about what does it mean to be religious, what does it mean to be spiritual, what does it mean to have faith, how do we pray, all of those kind of things that we can have intelligent conversations about those. The second thing that we enlarge our heart space, and that means for me, finding a place where you can sit calmly, close your eyes, and if you do nothing but count your breath, uh, it will it will introduce you to humility in a way that you did not know before you sat down, because you can't count to 10 without your mind going out the window. Mm-hmm. You're a total failure at meditation. And that's a great lesson to learn in humility right there. And then to do something with what you have learned and experienced in reaching out to other people to give an expression of faith, hope, peace, joy, patience, and humility in relationships. Pick up the phone and call somebody and see how they're doing. Hmm. Um, Write a letter. Uh, It's a perfect time during this um pandemic when we are constrained to stay inside to um write a letter to somebody who's been a great mentor or friend or guide to you along the way don't call them write a letter uh, handwritten if possible to express to them how grateful you are that they have been a part of your life and if you do that five or six times over the next two or three weeks it will lift your spirits and that is a spiritual practice. Yeah, that's right. That's a spiritual practice. Yeah. What are ways that you're attending to your spiritual life? Like what are some of your spiritual practices that you're finding in your own life that have been grounding? Well, I spend about an hour every morning uh, in a spiritual practice similar to what I just described. It mm-hmm. just is not, not one where during that time I'm writing letters. But um, I, I have written down... Um, Prayers that I like to be reminded of every single day, like the the prayer of Thomas Merton, I'm sure you're familiar with. God, I have no idea where I'm going, that prayer. Uh, I could read it for you. I could easily find it. Um, I like to um, be reminded of the fact that um, nothing lasts that I'm the nature to grow, get sick and die, and so are all the people that I love. Yes. Just to keep that in front of me, I have the I have some of those prayers and sayings that I read every day. Um, uh, I do the St. Patrick's Breastplate Prayer, my own version uh, of that, about uh, Jesus be with me. Um, and I spend time in, in reading. Um Right now, I'm reading an Irish uh, Roman Catholic writer, uh, Daramute or Mutu's book on uh, When the Disciple Arrives, uh, which is a wonderful book. I just, I cannot tell you how much I am loving reading that. Uh, and then um, I spend time just listening. Hmm. That's beautiful. I, oh, by the way, I write down my dreams every day. I'm a big believer in keep capturing my nighttime dreams. Mm. You know, John Sanford, the union analyst who died a couple of years, a couple of years ago, he wrote a great book on John, by the way. 
John Sanford uh, said that having a dream and not honoring it is like getting a letter from God and not reading it. <laughs> and so I've benefited from being in Jungian analysis and being trained in it. And I've just loved these little things that I get messages in the night to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah. I've talked to folks that are having a hard time sleeping, uh, that are sleeping a lot. You know, it feels like that part of this uh, part of this season has kind of thrown off some of those restorative rhythms in some ways. You know, um, and um, um, and so as you as you as you write your dreams down, as you pray, like what what are some of the like what do you what do you get out of that? What um, what what are you looking for in those dreams? Well, sometimes it takes me. Uh several weeks to be able to decipher what they mean. Sometimes it also means sitting with somebody else who's trained in uh, doing dream interpretation and having a conversation about the dream. I'm reminded about what a reporter once asked or said to Mother Teresa and said, I understand that you um, pray an hour a day. And she said, yes, I do. And he says, well, you're very busy. What do you do when you don't have time to do that? And she said, well, then I pray two hours a day. <laughs> and the reporter said, what do you say to God during that time? And she said, I would say anything. I just listen. And, oh, okay, well, what does God say to you during that time? And she said, God doesn't say anything. God just listens. So I think it's just the act of putting ourselves in a space where yes. we can listen. And I, I want to back up a little bit. When you talk about people who are grieving, I think this is an overlooked aspect of our Judeo-Christian faith. Mm -hmm. We have a book in the Hebrew collection called Lamentations. Yeah. And this is a time for lamenting. A lot of things that we thought we would never lose, we're losing. And things are not going to go back to the way they were. And uh, those losses are real for people. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, it's okay to lament. It's okay to be familiar with and to experience all of those um, reactions to grief of anger and denial and bargaining and all of that it's to be it's we need to be aware of those and to to um, allow ourselves to be okay with being in whatever aspect of that grieving process we're in it's yeah. okay to be angry uh just don't get stuck in it mm. you know mm. yeah yeah you know one of the things uh, I'm, I'm thinking about some people that i've been talking to or that have uh, reached out to me and it makes me think a lot about when Thomas Merton talks about the, the true self and the false self or the authentic self. And so much of what we have in life and who we are is, is constructed by the, where we live, the house we live in, the car we drive, the job we have, the title we have, the money we have, and, or, or it just any number of things you fill in, uh, the, the blank. And now people are finding, as, as you've said, we've lost all these things. And to top it off, not only are we grieving, losing rhythms and routines and people miss traffic, which is kind of crazy, uh, but, <laughs> but they're losing now with what we've seen in the last day, two days with this massive free fall in the oil market. Now people's 
economies, their personal economies, people's jobs. You know, it's, it's just, it's on steroids now. And people are really desperate uh, to look for some word of comfort, for some yeah. direction to point themselves. Because when you build your life all around these things that are things, the false self, and when those things are gone, if we've never done the work, like you've said, to really sit and be still in the presence of God and, and to kind of know that we are defined not by what we've done or not done, but because of who we are. That's right. If we've ne- a lot of people have never done that work, yeah. like you said. Yeah. And so how do, what, what, to people who are, are nowhere close to being there, what are you helping to tell people or to direct them or what comforting word do you give to them when it feels like they've just lost? Maybe they don't even know how to lament. I think of a story I heard years ago about a woman who went to a psychiatrist and said, I want to know what values to teach my son so that when he gets to be an adult, he will be able to make it in the world. And the psychiatrist said, "Uh, how old is your son? And she said, 12. He said, it's too late. Hmm. You should have started teaching him when he was one year old, two years old. And I think I have a great deal of empathy and compassion for people who have confused who they are with what they have and what they do. Um, because when that is suddenly jerked away from them, they are in a, they, they really are. The word they used a minute ago is they're really in a free fall. And I have great compassion for them. Richard Rohr says that people get into the contemplative life one of two ways. They either take up a spiritual practice and they do it, and or they have a great crisis, and the crisis pushes them into an area against their will uh, that they they they. they need companionship, they need guidance, certainly, in that, uh, and they need to know that there's hope. So sometimes I will suggest to somebody that um, they read uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I went into clinical training in 1966, there were two books that were required reading, and that was one of them. And I think that book may have had more profound impact on more people than any book that I could think of outside of the Bible, because here is a man who went into a concentration camp the day after he went in, his mother, father, brother, and pregnant wife were executed by the Nazis. He was kept alive because he was a a doctor and could be of use to people. And um, he said that Even in that circumstance, what he learned was that um, everything could be taken away from a person except their freedom to choose how they would feel about what was going on with them. Mm -hmm. And if we embrace our identity as Jesus encouraged us to do, you are a child of God just like I am then I don't mean to be flippant about this, but if we can embrace that, what do we have to be afraid of? Yeah. Fear of loss. I mean, I think that's the biggest, the biggest fear 
a lot of us face is think that we'll lose things. Yes. And, and then when you lose things, if you have, that's why I I think most people that have experienced great loss in their life, they seem to have a, a, a deeper sense of calm when chaos like this comes because they have lost something very meaningful and deep in their lives. Whereas I I think if people have lived, and this sounds harsh, but I mean, I think you both know what I mean. They have lived sort of a charmed life. Mm. You know, everything's been successful. They've always won or they've always been, you know, in the good place and the good decisions and the good job. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people that I know that have had that sort of an existence, not everybody, but there've been a lot. Mm -hmm. And so when this comes, this is, not just a little hiccup. That's right. This is big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it it seems to to rattle us from the inside, right? And so if those things, what I hear you saying, um, Bill, is that um, something my spiritual director said a couple weeks ago to me, which was this virus does not have to make your soul sick, right? That the, the, the spiritual things that you are encouraging us to do that we as a church say the foundation of it is, is, is are things that don't have to make our soul sick, that the virus can happen on the outside and shake the economy, shake things, systems possibly. But um, this inner strength that we can draw on um, is absolutely necessary in order to and respond. I, <laughs> and, and I want, I want to come back and stress the importance of the communal aspect of this. Mm. The, the, the book that I'm currently reading about when the disciple arrives uh, is um, just the upside down version of uh, one that I'm sure you both heard. Uh, usually it is said to have come from the Buddhist tradition about when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Mm-hmm. And what Omichu is saying is, is that when the adult appears, the teacher disappears because where the adult is in community of empowerment with other believers who support and share these values of peace, hope, joy, love, patience, and humility in a, in a context of a community of people. We're not in this by ourselves. And I think one of the great lessons that we could get out of this pandemic is the importance of seeing how connected we all are. Mm. You know, my hand washing is keeping you guys safe. <laughs> and, and I mean, seriously, yeah, right, we have right. to realize how our behavior is intertwined. Yeah. And when we have people in our in this commonality of empowerment, which is the phrase that Ormichu is using for the kingdom of God, where there's no pyramid, there's no hierarchy, there's just this commonality of people who are infused with love and hope and possibility. We are what makes a way when there is no way. Mm-hmm. That's what resurrection is about. Yeah is that we live in that faith that there will be a way. And I don't mean to sound airy-fairy. I know that, you know, a a story that I tell sometimes is that when I was in clinical training in a hospital, we were sent out into uh, the hospital to do rounds, and it was always for people who were dying or where a death had just occurred. And... uh, we were in our late 20s, early 30s, 
as trainees and um, scared to death. <laughs> I'm serious. We, I mean, it's like somebody trying to fly an airplane without taking lessons. Go out on rounds to your first time and you're going to be with, with a family where somebody's just died. And so I can remember there were a group of guys. Unfortunately, there were no women in our training group. And we were being given assignments about where to go in the hospital and what to do and what patient to see or what room. And somebody in the group said to our supervising psychiatrist, we don't know what to do. Tell us what to say when we go out there. And the psychiatrist said, um, well, don't say anything. Just be a non-anxious presence in the room. And somebody said, how can we do that? We're terrified. You know, we're really scared. So he's walking out the door. He opened the, I remember this so vividly. He opened the door. He turned around and he looked at us and he said, gentlemen, let me tell you something. If you are lucky, you will grow old, get sick, and die. If you're lucky, <laughs> if you're not lucky, you will get hit by a truck. Have a nice day. And then walked out of the room. Well, the greatest spiritual teachers that I have known, um, Jim Finley, Richard Rohr, some of my Buddhist teachers over the years, um, spiritual directors that I have had, one of the things that I would say, uh, they, the quality that they have in common, is a, a kind of irrepressible joy about them because they know the truth that mm -hmm. death doesn't have the last word. Yeah. And they live that. And I, I, th I think it was the Dalai Lama who said that joy is the most important quality in a spiritual teacher. I mean, who wants to hang out with a sourpuss? <laughs> so, Some people. <laughs> I don't, uh, maybe... So, That's that old saying, some people are not happy unless they're unhappy. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so how does, how does Jesus help us in this? And my, my answer to that is that uh, one of the reasons that people were attracted to the historic Jesus was that he was a healer. Hmm. And I think that the <clears throat> mistake we make frequently is that we take the healing stories of Jesus and we make them literal instead of, and we stop there instead of seeing the metaphorical value they have to bring healing to the woundedness that all of us have about two things. We, we are wounded in our notions about who we are and we are wounded in our notions about who God is. Hmm. And Jesus said that who you are is a child of God. And if you are a child of God, there's no reason to have low self-esteem. Uh, you may have some severe family woundedness that we, uh, most people do. Most people grew up being wounded in the family of origin where they grew up to some degree or another. Some people horribly, but that's not a wound to our essence. And I think spiritual work is about yeah. claiming the essence that we are as, as children of God. Mm. And um, I don't know if I'm answering your, your question or not, but I'm really uh, caught up with the, the notion that we need to reappropriate 
the the experience of of allowing Jesus, the healer, to touch us in ways that remind us of our identity and that bring wholeness and, and healing to the mm. way that we move in the world. And the one that stands out to me, I think I've sh- shared, I don't even know if we've talked about it on this podcast or not before, but I think it's Mark 8 where the man is blind. Jesus is headed into the, the village, but before he goes into the village, they bring out the man that's blind uh, uh, out. And, and so he spits in the ground, of course, and the man looks around, he says, I see people like trees. And then he does it again. It's almost like it didn't work the first time. (laughs) But what's really odd about that story that fits what you're talking about, that the deeper layers of meaning and the healing stories is that when the man can see, he says, go home, but don't go back into the village. Well, he lives in the village. And I'll never forget there was an African pastor who talked about that passage of scripture and said the village doesn't just mean the the locale, the geography. It's a definition of identity. Uh, it's the people are the uh, village. And so when he said, go home, but don't return to the village, he says, you go home, but you're no longer defined in all the ways that they used to define you mm-hmm. as the beggar at the gate who will never be married and never have a family and never contribute to, to the greater good of society. And so for Jesus to stay, go home, but don't return to the village that's where he lives. Right. So it was always for years confused me until I heard that uh, explanation from a different cultural context. Yeah. But now I see, just like you're saying, there's way more going on there than just healing his eyesight. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder in this time, John, as as we think about like what Bill's talking about with identity, that if a lot of folks' identity is being kind of um, shaken up, that there is that deep sense in which the spirit of God, then that's what I, I hear you talking about, Bill, with the spiritual kind of practices is that we have the chance to, to reconnect these kind of malformed identities that have been known in what we do and what we have to hear this other alternative voice that's deeply shaping saying, you are my beloved sons and daughters, right? Let that shape who we are. Because at the end of the day, everything else is going to shake around. As I see it, and this is not an original idea with me, um, a shift among spiritual teachers really occurred with the uh, Apollo flight where we saw a picture of the Earth Hmm. from out in space. Remember that? Yeah. The blue marble. And and we, uh, as one of the astronauts said, we went into space to learn about space but what we learned about was about the earth Mm. and so here we are in this um, pandemic being given this brilliant opportunity to see the village the home Mm -hmm. where we live and to see that there are no artificial lines drawn on the planet about who's in, who's out, who's good, who's bad, who's right, who's wrong. Uh, the, the pandemic knows no geographical boundaries. Hmm. Uh, neither does God. And we have an opportunity to embrace that. Again, this community of empowerment hmm. um, to, bring, to bring our Christian faith and values to an expression of, of this new way of seeing each other. Hmm. 
um, and and living that reality. Mm. We're given a, a great opportunity here. Yeah, yeah. It makes me wonder, and I don't say this with any negative uh, insinuation. There are people who, I mean, I, I agree. I would love for the economy to start back up. Uh, you know, I mean, I want the world to open back up tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That if I could uh, have that happen, but I wonder if if it's not scientifically, medically, the smart thing to do. And yet people are pushing for that. I wonder how much of this is tied into this. It's like, we can't really do the work. So we've got to, it's, it's almost like we've got to get back to Eden. You know, we've got to return back to the way it was in, and just in spite of all the facts that may be in front of you, we got to get back to the way it was. And I wonder, I'm just asking, is there some way that we are not doing that work that we need to do as a society or segments of our society. Yes. We'd just rather just get back to the way it was four weeks ago. Yeah. And then I don't have to deal with all of this existential <laughs> crisis. Crisis in my life. about meaning, right? Or yeah. who I am. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. One of the questions um, that I heard somebody ask the other week um, in, in regards to that was the, the question of what am I unwilling to, to feel in this time? You know, what, what am I told? I'm, I'm, I'm pushing off and I'm resisting because in that place will be growth. But I think you're right. I mean, sometimes I'm, I'm alone too much with myself and I'm like, let's, you know, that desire to return back and not to deal with the stuff is, um, is huge. Um, I think the agitation of the agitation is, is a signal Mm. and I don't know exactly what it means, but it means something Yes, that you're agitated, that you are sick and tired of (laughs) being stuck in. (laughs) All of these things are little signals that are being sent to your spirit, I think. And it's part of our job, as you said, to become a contemplative, to, 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 to help the church become more contemplative is to help people process all of these varieties of feelings and emotions and experiences and to recognize they're, they're, they're calling us to something. Yes. When I hear people say, um, we want to get reopen things and let them go back to the way they were. Uh, I want to, I want to see where those voices are coming from. What segment of our population is saying that? Somebody sent me a photograph today from my home state, Tennessee. Protesters where a woman is holding up a sign that says, sacrifice the weak, reopen Tennessee. Uh, The weak are not saying, let's go back to the way things were. Because the least of these weren't getting a shake. And that's showing up now in healthcare and in jobs lost and other things, the people who are taking the most punishment out of this pandemic are those who are already at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to see what opening up and going back to business as usual looks like for those folk. Mm -hmm. What does it mean for us really as as the body of Christ in the world? How do we now take advantage of the opportunity to respond to what he said about as you do it to one of the least of these, you do it to me? Mm-hmm. How does that show up in the way now that we're trying to figure out new ways to to worship, to evangelize? I'm a Southern Baptist in my, my roots, so I never got over that <laughs> uh, part of wanting to bring people in. 
how do we in, issue the invitation that is really inclusive? Yes. Mm-hmm. And 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 somehow try to live into this um, metaphor of a commonality uh, of empowerment for everybody who is at the table. Yeah. How can we do that? And I think you know we're clearly going to have a massive shakeup in healthcare. That's just coming. Um, Hospitals are going, uh, many hospitals are already out of business because uh, rural hospitals have been depending for income on elective surgery. They've not been able to do elective surgery. They have been able to make money. Therefore, they're going bankrupt. So um, healthcare for people in rural and, and disadvantaged places is already at the brink, if not over the cliff. So how, how are we in the next five years, three years, two years, whatever, going to address the um, the problem that healthcare is delivered to not just those who have the money to afford it, but to everybody who needs it. Because in the long run, everybody's well-being is dependent on our well-being. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So it's a complicated thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest, the biggest eye-opening education for me in this process has been all this data that talks about how many hospital beds there are in Houston and how many ICU beds and how many ventilators. And when you think of a city with six or 7 million people Mm -hmm. and you look and you see that there's only a couple of, you know, hundred of of some of these things, or, you know, you, you start asking yourself like, wow, you know, we, we've been really fortunate that a lot of people don't get really seriously sick at one time. Right. And, yeah. and I understand why you wouldn't have thousands and thousands of ICU beds because you wouldn't need them all the time. Right. But now when you need them, you realize we don't have as much out there as we think we do. Right, right. Yeah. And we're not as resourced and as strong as we, we think we are, you know, um, in this time as well. I, I'm not an epidemiologist, but um, isn't it kind of a mathematical certainty that over a period of the next, say, eight, 10, 12 months, almost all of us are going to get infected with this virus. That's yeah. The, the, we had Dr. Mark boom on from Methodist hospital. He thinks that there are a lot more people that already have it in Houston, uh, asymptomatic, but because we haven't, you know, we're only testing people that are very sick. And yeah, I think by the end of this thing, by next year, before there's a vaccine and you, cl- you get what they call this herd uh-huh. immunity, you could have out of 340 million people, you could have half of the United States or two thirds would have had it by then at some point. Yeah. So what these mitigation efforts have been is just to keep from overwhelming the very system that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we really don't know over the next months what will happen if there'll be a rebound, another wave? We don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that again, one of the things that I'm seeing in clients that I'm talking to, I would say that um, there has not been a client session that I have had in the last month, certainly three weeks where this has not been the first and major issue that's brought up in the session about the virus, about uh, people's anxiety, what's going to happen and, and and related things. Hmm. 
And as time passes, we hear more about um, people who get it, people who die, people who can't, as I mentioned earlier, can't have a service uh, of bereavement and grief and celebration of a loved one's life. Um, I know our church right now is not doing funerals and not doing weddings. Mm -hmm. When you talk to someone, you know, I I really am resonating with what you said that about Roar talking about shutting down the churches for a year so that we could develop a contemplative spirit. The vast majority of people in our churches, though, don't even know where to begin to Mm -hmm. develop a journey towards a contemplative lifestyle. What, What resources would you give someone who's at the beginning of that journey and maybe they want to engage in that journey. They don't even know where to start. What, where would you point them or, or what advice would you give to them? Well, um, I would suggest that they get um, maybe Thomas Merton's book, New Seeds of Contemplation, and read it. I would suggest that they get... Uh, Jim Hollis's book, Living an Examined Life, and reading a chapter every day and making notes about it. Uh, I would suggest that they buddy up with four or five other people who would read those books with them and talk with them about it. Um, Jim Finley has books on the contemplative way that people can read. Um, I think you guys have an opportunity, responsibility to offer some groups um, educating people about the contemplative life. Um, we had a couple of really active centering prayer groups at our church, and I think now they've gone on to Zoom uh, sessions. So I would encourage people to seek out something like that. Through This is a golden opportunity that churches have now of helping people learn about uh, contemplation, mm. meditation, prayer, service, those kinds of things to uh, help get them involved. When I have asked people to, um, I I used to be not so kind, I think, in my work. Uh, People would say to me, well, uh, I would ask them about their spiritual life. Because I have, uh, for 50 years now, been guided by a, a a paragraph that I read when I was in graduate school by Carl Jung. And uh, Jung wrote this about four or five different ways in his various writings. But the way that I read it was in Psyche in Search of a Soul Self. Um, Fifty years ago, Jung said, Among all of my patients in the second half of life, that is, above the age of 35, there's not been a one for whom the resolution of life's difficulties did not reside in finding a religious solution to life's dilemmas. Mm. I love that. Mm. So I, I have various things in my office that evoke that in people. And they'll ask about it from time to time. And I'll ask them, uh, tell me about your spiritual life. And they'll say, well, I'm not, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. I said, great. That's wonderful. Tell me how you practice that spiritual. Hmm. And they fall all over themselves because they can't answer that question. They don't have a way that they practice. Hmm. They just have it as a way of saying, I'm not religious. Okay. That's okay. But how are you spiritual? You Hmm. are a spiritual being. 
how do you give evidence to that spirituality? Mm. And then I will put them on to reading something. And if they're uh, in the Christian tradition, it will usually be something like a Richard Orr book, Everything Belongs, is one that I recommend to a lot of people. If they're not Christian, if they're anti-church, if they're anti-Christian uh, religion, I'll recommend something maybe that Pima's Children has written about the places that scare you or when things fall apart. And I'll say, I would like for you to read this and then come back and talk with me about it. I want to know what your experience is. Hmm. And um, I think we, do, we, we develop our spirituality in relationship with someone who can serve as a, a guide. Yeah. Um, and if we're lucky, we find somebody who's usually a little bit further down the road than we are, but we're all traveling in the same mm -hmm. direction. Yeah. I'm um, constantly been reminded in these times, both in this, the text that we're looking at within our own church and in um, um, kind of the voices of other people and uh, texts that I'm reading out of scripture, just the way that the spirit shows up constantly with people that are in turmoil um, and that what is spoken into that place um, is, um, is this, this invitation not to fear and to receive peace. Right. Um, and I, I think that that, as I hear you talk about that non-anxious presence, you know, as I hear about this kind of new reality that there's got to what John's been talking about, these anchor points, you know, where we're dropping anchors. That, that, that's it's it's into those places of, of not being consumed by fear and um, expanding our capacity to receive peace, the peace of God that passes and bypasses many times our understanding right um, that anchors us into then we can we, we can live wisely we can live differently into these times and and it's it's counterintuitive i'm finding you know to to surrender in a place where your your heart is constricted um, feels counterintuitive um, but it feels like the, it's the invitation so john you mentioned the story of the healing of the blind man earlier mm -hmm. i love that and and in this post easter season mm -hmm. I'm reminded of all the times that Jesus appeared and people didn't see him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Don't recognize he was the stranger. <laughs> he was the stranger in the garden on the road to Emmaus on the beach. Mm -hmm. And he was there. But it took the eyes of faith being open to healing of their spiritual blindness mm. to be able to see. Now, our faith is that that sacred presence is here right among us. I mean, isn't that what he said? Mm -hmm. Where two or three of you are gathered together, I will be there in your midst. God, help us to see. Yeah. Mm. That's and a good to word. respond to what we see. Amen. That's a good word. Mm. He's here. Amen. Well, um, Bill, thanks so much for spending time with us today. Um, we really appreciate your wisdom, uh, your insight, um, all that uh, all that you, you bring everywhere you go. Well, this has been fun, guys. It has been fun, Bill. We'll Thank you again. so much for being with Thank us and you, sharing your love wisdom. You, love you, John. Get to, to have, spend time with you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Bill. We appreciate it. It's our it. pleasure. Can I say this? One yeah. of the things that I've, I've been excited about and um, and proud about with our own community, as I think about like some of the things that Jesus said coming out of kind of the trauma of kind of his own death and resurrection, when he looks at Peter and just says, "Feed my sheep," and I think about the folks in our community that are hungry, that our church is feeding, hmm. you know, both physically. Um, 
uh, the numbers to me are astounding, you know? Yeah. And those are just, you know, at, at, at the at Fairhaven yeah. and Gessner Road, what are we now at 5,000 families and 21, over 20,000 20, yeah. individuals and partnership with Houston Food Bank. And that's just, you know, and we're, we're one of the larger ones in West Houston. And the, mm -hmm. the map, if you look at the zip code map of Houston, and the west side of Houston, where we are, is one of the highest concentrated, uh, concentrated yeah. areas of COVID-positive COVID. tests. Yeah. And so you've got a lot of um, Latino community. You've got a lot of poverty in certain aspects of the area. So the need is great. great. Yeah. 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 And I love that our church is just showing up in that and just saying, okay, we don't know what's going to happen, but there's hungry folks and there's sick folks and, and the small groups that are busting out on zoom in our church and, yeah. you know, the spiritual direction and the prayer. I just think, okay, you know, the church still is showing up and being light in darkness. But this goes back to our own spiritual journey. I yeah. think in the church, we get so caught up in the 10, the 20, the 30, the 40 yard line. What do we do? What do we produce? Yeah. What, how many people were here Sunday? How many people would we reach this week? But all this kind of stuff. And now it's like, okay, all that stuff is removed. Yeah. And so, okay, you sit in the dirt and you say, all right, well, I'm just going to do the next right thing. What's the next right thing? We have a food pantry. We can get food from yeah. Houston Food Bank and we're just going to invite people to come out here and hand out food every day. And so how long are you going to do that? Well, we're just going to do it till we don't do it anymore. Yeah. You know, so if there's going to be a Groundhog Day aspect, let's just get up every day and go out and serve food to families that are, they're hungry. Hungry. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. That, that's, that's, uh, that gives me hope in the midst of all of this stuff that that's, uh, I don't know what to do, but I know there's hungry folks. Let's go feed them. <laughs> you <know>? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I would say this too, that to those of us, to those of, in our church community, those that are listening to this even today, that if you're feeling anxious and afraid, if there's a sense in which you're feeling the foundations of your own life kind of beginning to shake a bit, um, that you don't have to go through that alone. Hmm. You know, that there's folks to call, there's spiritual practices to, uh, to begin. Um, and that whatever comes out of this, um, as you've said over and over, John, that God won't leave us and that God has us. It doesn't mean it's not going to get tough. Uh, it means in the midst of that, God will sustain us come what may. Um, so I think we can do that with and for each other. Well, we need we need to access the. We've always believed in community yes. as a people of faith. Yeah. Now you have to actually yeah. put that community into yeah. practice. So That's if right. you, I mean, when you're in need, when you're sad, you're anxious, you're angry, you need to reach out to somebody. Yeah. And I always like the idea of, um, you know, the desert fathers and mothers always used to say you have to have a spiritual guide in your life, someone who's mastered. Uh, things mm -hmm. that you seek to master right. or that has traveled a road that you haven't traveled that yes. you want to travel. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of people out there that we're connected to that have been through things that we're going through or feeling things. And those are the folks that I want to reach out to and go, all right, I'm having a hard time yeah. with this. What you got? <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of times they'll just lament with you, Yes, you know, yeah. uh, but at least yeah. they've walked in a place where you're walking. Yeah. Now. I look at it as a great opportunity for the church to really remove some of the, I call them baubles, the bells, the whistles, some yeah. of the things that have gotten in the way yeah. of, of, of our faith. And I think this is a time where we can reclaim some of that, yeah. you know, where the faith, 
you know, that we have this whole generation says, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And it's like, okay, well now you have the opportunity to engage in spiritual practices outside of the big religious institution. But that's what religion is. Religion simply means to bind us together. Yeah. Enjoyed it. Always. I'm John Stevens. And I'm Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. (laughs) 